Questions? Yeah, I when you said the West, yeah. So you said whether the Indians like uh, when we grew up, yeah. So we were told the Beatles, you know, those rock stars. Yeah. U.S. That's what we do. Take the West. So they were all under drug abuse or whatever X Y Z, and then they found that India, Rishikesh, and you know, that's the place where they could achieve salvation. Yeah. Or what you're saying, meditation, will it give them enlightenment? So these people came to India. All these for uh, the Beatles. Similarly, mm. Mahesh Yogi has uh, left from India and he yeah. to US. So yoga as a practice as for concentration, you know, where it means anybody could do it. Like so, and now people in the West today, yeah, people from India going and uh, opening up yoga classes, and then their teachers who are US people or you know the Americans or whatever. Because I don't know much about other mm. countries. So uh, and then yoga, what you said, like you only learned you about this once you got to know the Ayodhya episode. Yeah. So that's very recent. Well, it makes sense to come in, to India at least to to get a start, because you see in India here at least it's culturally accepted and it's culturally sort of underpinned for these bhajans that are about enlightenment. Um, you know, it feels right, and nobody thinks you're being funny. Although they also think you're funny because you're a Westerner, and so they wonder. You see, when you already have everything, you know what? What do you need this for? And yeah, many people, of course, also have a a funny view of India. You see, they idealize India, um, like uh, there is this this writer Mishra. Mishra, some, um, some Mishra who writes, who looks a bit like you, uh, who takes this modernist, secularist view, and so he writes about yoga. Mahpankaj Mishra, yes. And so he, he observes quite correctly. I mean, I don't like his general secularist prejudices. But still, you see, he makes some very good observations, and so he sort of smirks at the sight of all these Westerners in Rishikesh dividing their time, as he writes it, between raising their kundalini and checking their hotmail accounts. <laughs> you know, that's more or less what is happening there. Now, you see, those people from the West have this very idealized image of India, like when they hear about about. You see religious violence in India and so on. It's like it, it just doesn't sit well with their worldview. And in in Delhi, you see outside the airport, you have this prepaid taxi. And so regularly, you see Westerners arrive. They come out of the airport. They go to the prepaid taxi. They pay. They get a taxi. They drive straight to Rishikesh. And they spend, uh, you know, they, they take some yoga course there for two weeks or so. Then they come back by taxi straight to the airport, take the airplane. And so all they get to see of India is this ashram. And so they have this, like, very partial view of India. Okay. Nevertheless, it <coughs> fits in with the idea that, well, you see, to get started on yoga, maybe India is the best place, the most conducive. But then again, uh, you know, spiritual traditions have existed everywhere and maybe not as sophisticated as 
as yoga, nevertheless enough to satisfy many people in, in other civilizations. So maybe India isn't necessary at all. And nowadays, you know, you can get all these teachings of yoga anywhere in the world. You know, you are with, I don't know what, imprisoned somewhere in Siberia, but at least they let you have an internet computer. So you download uh, these teachings of Patanjali. It's all there. You find, I don't know, 12 or so different translations of Patanjali with comment and so on. You know, you have online courses. And so you don't need India anymore. Yeah, that's... Uh, and so, so you see, that is a very real prospect that very soon um, India will no longer have a special relation with yoga. That's a possibility, especially if India keeps doing what it is doing, uh, that might be the result. Yeah? yeah. Before coming to yoga, yeah. We often uh, see in post people predicting 80% Hindus or 74% Hindus. But in my experience, practicing Hindus are uh, only 5% or less than that. Yes. And uh, coming to yoga, mm -hmm. uh, maybe we can mock them that uh, they are raising Kundalini of heart meals. Mm -hmm. But I taught uh, foreigners from across the countries for three years in Kerala. And I can say that. They may not have cultural relation to India or they are totally alien to our Ayurveda and all these uh, things, mm -hmm. cultural past. But they are very honest and dedicated yes. people. Once they get the taste, you know, they will do everything. Maybe they will, they will, they will go to the wrong ashrams, they will go meet wrong gurus, they will have very uh, narrow view. They will not meet right teachers mm -hmm. because right teachers are, uh, uh, you know, like uh, killing a mockingbird. So today we are mad people here and uh, most of the people are muftis and uh, padri is here. Mm -hmm. You know the people who are asking yeah. about lynching and all this, they are more uh, foreigner than you mm -hmm. in your yeah. white skin. So, this is yeah, I know. And I mean, when you look at the secularists here in Delhi, mm -hmm. you know, I suggest, you know, to understand their mentality, you know, a little excursion is needed. In fact, we are here on Janpat, I believe. So you just need to walk one kilometer on Janpat, just near Connaught Place, where like the buses arrive from the airport with first-time tourists, you know, and they have the Lonely Planet Guide with them, which has a little chapter on Indian history. And that's like, like all they know about India. Well, you could compare them with secularists. You see, their knowledge, particularly about, about Hinduism, about religion in general, is about that level. And I mean, I don't say this lightly. You see, I've very often been startled by how illiterate they are, at least on that. They may be good economists or whatever, but you see, understanding the, 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 the debates about worldviews and so on, they're not good at. Yeah? So... Thank you very much for two lectures. Yeah. Um, I have a question regarding the historical evolution of yoga. Yeah. So I recently read the biography of BKS Iyengar, yes. the yoga exponent. And uh, the point was being made that at some point in medieval days, the yoga tradition had gone extinct. And uh, what passes as yoga today is actually a resurrected version of something partial that uh, BKS Iyengar had access to. Plus, 
uh, strangely enough, some British calisthenic exercises. I mean, what is your opinion on this thesis? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, yes, you see, quite a few Western researchers have recently come to the view that uh, yoga is quite recent and that it's mostly based on Western health exercises, Swedish gymnastics and so on. Uh, well, I very much disagree. And so, you know, I mean, this is a long story, but, you know, to, to, to confine ourselves to the essentials. Uh, Hatha Yoga, and that's well documented, dates from about 1000. The whole system of physical exercises, breathing exercises, <clears throat> from the Nath Yogis, Matsyendra Nath, and so on. Um, there, Iyengar has uh, introduced a little story that I think is very doubtful, namely that his own book, no, not his own teacher, uh, Tirumalai uh, Krishnamacharya, he wrote his book um, uh, Yoga Rahasya, claiming that it was really written by uh, some yogi 1,000 uh, years earlier, who was one of the first masters of Hatha Yoga. And so that he had, out of heaven or somewhere, dictated the book to this, this modern yoga master. And uh, so this whole school of Krishnamacharya, Patabhi Joyce, uh, Iyengar, um, <coughs> sets great store by this one book, Yoga Rahasya. And... Uh, <coughs> When you read the book, it is very obvious that it's 20th century. It is certainly not dictated by someone from the 10th century. For example, it pays great attention to yoga for women, and specifically yoga for pregnant women. Now, I am not at all against yoga for women, uh, but the tradition was that yoga was for men and particularly for celibate men, for monks. And so women were supposed to live in the family and to be like at the ready all the time for their children or for their, for their parents or for whoever needed them. They had to get up from the bed first because they had to prepare food and so on before the husband came. And, and so they had to be ready all the time and they had no time for something like meditation. If the, if the husband had to go to work, you know, he was also busy, but at least, you see, in the morning or in the evening, he could set apart an hour to be, you know, on his own, and if he wanted to practice yoga, whereas a woman was supposed to totally be in the middle of the household and so on, and to not practice yoga. And so whether that is good or not is a different question, but that was a very widespread view. And so in the middle of that view, suddenly this, this 10th century yoga would have decided, oh, I'm going to do it everything, everything different. Let's start yoga for women. And then this went under the radar for 1,000 years. Nobody practiced it. And then suddenly there it is, 20th century. When on the other hand, we know that the 20th century brought a great wave of feminism where women, first in England, then gradually in India, started to demand uh, the right to use the same uh, opportunities in life that men used. 
So you see that story of uh, it was dictated to me and so on, that is totally unnecessary, you know, paranormal miracle story that is not needed. But you see the the serious part in the story about Ayangar, namely that uh, that yoga was a recent thing and came from the West and so on. You see, there may be certain um, additions uh, from the West, but I think it's very few. Um, you know, certain exercises you can see are not age-old. Like, for instance, you have certain Harappan seals, where, first of all, you see yogis sitting in meditation, and outsiders who don't know yoga will say, well, but this need not be yoga. In fact, that argument is made in the West all the time. You know, where they say, yes, but you see, India is a very hot country. People are naturally very supple. You know, so if somebody sits in yoga, uh, lotus posture, it doesn't prove that he's doing yoga. A tailor who needs to sit while, you know, for his work may just as well take the, the lotus posture. It doesn't prove he's doing yoga. Yeah, that is not, that is not incorrect. Nevertheless, you look carefully at those pictures. You know, the, like the Shiva Pashupati, as he's called. Um, you do see someone sitting in yoga posture, not in any posture, sitting in yoga posture. You know, so you're completely straight and uh, with his eyes closed and, you know, everything in the correct manner, like a yoga should, a yogi should. Um, so, and then, you know, you already find certain asanas. You never see these contortions. Or you never see, to my knowledge, anyone standing on his head. You see, so of course, in Hatha Yoga, you get more sophisticated uh, asanas. Uh, that's more recent. But you see, the basis is already very much there since, since 5,000 years. So that I don't believe at all. And then you should bring in the politics behind it. You see, of course, there are very many things where there is politics behind it, but it's not relevant. You see, I think yoga is very valid, regardless of any political use that anyone thinks he can make of it. Like even those social justice warriors who think that to be a yogi, you have to be, you know, anti-racist, pro-homosexual and so on. Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. But you see, ultimately, it's just not important. You see, yoga is there, and whatever opinions or whatever have to go with it, yeah, we'll discuss that sometime. But you see, yoga in itself is just very, very valuable. And, um, you know, yogis and everyone else in India already knew that 5,000 years ago. They didn't need British army drills for that. Uh, so... Yeah, you see, I will, I will mention and, and explore a bit some real foreign contribution to yoga. Aha, where is it? Uh, you know, that, 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 that's a little thesis of mine. Um, and so most people, even in the field, don't know about it or think differently about it, but I'm pretty sure of it. Namely, in China, you have a discipline called Neitan, which means internal alchemy. It is based on Vaitan, which means external alchemy. Now, external alchemy means prolonging your life 
mostly by means of supplements for which they experimented. Actually, and sometimes the experiments went wrong. Like, for instance, they thought, you know, lead uh, is something that prolongs your life. They started eating lead. And then you see someone died because of lead poisoning. But one effect is that his body decomposed more slowly. So his pupils said, yeah, well, the master wasn't entirely right, but he was on the right track. So let's take more of it. <laughs> now, you know, fortunately, that, that didn't last very long. Like the, 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 the greatest emperor of China, Qin Shi Huang, 3rd century BC, he died of those experiments. And um, so, you know, that was given up. But the language used for external alchemy was then transferred to use of internal exercises that are very similar to Indian pranayama. Okay? Um, now, one of the exercises they did is the, the microcosmic orbit, which means to, um, with your attention, to guide your breath, to guide your energy up and down the spine. <clears throat> okay? Now, this is like more or less what in India is known as Kundalini Yoga. Okay? Only, in India it is do uh, documented only since about 400 AD. Whereas in China it is documented since at least 300 BC. Moreover, in China you see it evolving. Whereas in India the system appears ready-made. With that goes the system of energy centers. In China, you have energy centers that you certainly heard of in acupuncture. Um, and so some energy centers are more important than others. And so a number are picked out and cultivated in the Indian version with the chakras. You know, chakra literally means wheel, but effectively means center and therefore energy center. And so in the um, uh, Sundaralahari, for example, you find a classical exposition of that system. And so since the mid-first millennium AD, it becomes common in India. And now, of course, in the West, you can follow all kinds of chakra courses and so on. Um, <clears throat> India is less crazy about chakras than the West is at the moment. Um, but so that system, I think, is very much foreign. Now, among Hindu nationalists, I haven't seen any of them among you yet. But you see, quite a few people don't like this. You see, they say, ah, yeah, why do you want to reduce you know, Hindu culture to something foreign? Now, that's not what I want to do. But it's only that, well, when there is the reality of some foreign contribution, well, then you have to face the fact. And so in this case, I think that is true. Now, it so happens that I think that all this chakra and kundalini business is a distraction. You know, Patanjali never needed this. The Buddha never needed this. And so, you know, yoga is very much simpler. And so I, I don't say that these, these chakras and so on, they are not there or they are not useful. Yes, but nevertheless, uh, you have to sort of discern between the main things and the additional things. Now, the main things you find 
in uh, the, the classics, like the Katha Upanishad. You see, that's probably the first text where yoga is described and where the word yoga is used. Because you get earlier texts where yogic phenomena or the yogic pursuit are already explained, but the word yoga isn't used. And conversely, you have a few uses of the word yoga, but where it has a different meaning. Like yoga means to yoke, and so it means, for example, to actually yoke uh, animals to a cart or to a, a chariot. So it can even mean a situation where a knight in shining armor comes out, you see, goes to his stable, takes his chariot, takes his horses, yokes them to the chariot, and drives out to war. Okay? So one of the meanings of yoga is actually war. <laughs> and so there are like many um, yeah, less, less obvious meanings to yoga. So you have to use your, uh, use your intellect to discern what is meant. But so at a certain point, yoga acquires its classical meaning. Now the first time where you have that, to my knowledge, is the Katha Upanishad. And there, there is a very simple definition of yoga. Just three sentences. Namely, yoga is closing off the senses, still in the mind, and that is the highest state. Bus. Okay? So the, the definition of yoga is very simple. Earlier I described Zen Buddhism, where you sit down and still the mind, and that's the only thing you do for the rest of your life, okay? So, you see, that's not something typical for Zen Buddhism with its austere uh, tradition that already existed in India much earlier. And so, I think it's, that, it's very good to keep that in mind even when you start doing some of these more encyclopedic things. Now, recently I've been to a few conferences on Tantra and Shakta and so on. And, you know, that's all very interesting, but I wonder, you see, how encyclopedic. You, know, you have the seven chakras, you have the ten Mahavidyas, you have the 64 yoginis, and, you know, the, the, the 36 tattvas, and it's... Where do you start? Where does it all end? When, in fact, you see, the, 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 the Katha Upanishad says it in three sentences. Hmm? Uh, so, there is a, a, a backbone of yoga in India going back 5,000 years or more. You know, the, the very first appearance of yoga probably we know nothing about, but we see it as a mature tradition already in the Harappan uh, sculptures, where, and here we speak of like 4,500 years ago. So it's at least that old, and it may be much older. Uh, so that is, uh, that is very much there. And then later it acquired some new insights, some new techniques. And so once this process was going on, and they heard that some, in China they had something similar, then yes, you see, they may have brought in those techniques too. And so in principle, I have nothing against it, when they say, oh yeah, you see, and this exercise comes from British army drills, 20th century. Well, 
in principle that's not impossible and I have nothing against it but you see there too you have only a, an auxiliary you see a very small thing compared to what yoga really is and so you know maybe it is useful for some people but it's a very small thing yoga is valid in itself the tradition of yoga is 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 complete you see very little can be added to it yes do you do yoga and yeah. what kind of yoga do you do and when you when did you start it before reading the yoga or by something else well um <laughs> Um, my father, who was a staunch Catholic, nevertheless, for health reasons, had taken courses in Hatha Yoga. In fact, he went to the yoga group every week, and then he practiced every day at home. And um, in imitation of that, I already started doing some exercises without ever having learned anything. I've stood on my head every day since 13, 14 years of age. Till, wait a minute, it's unfortunately not over, till uh, last year, because I have high blood pressure. And so not only the doctors in hospital, but even yoga teachers say, well, you know, it's not really compatible with high blood pressure. So I've taken risks for years. In fact, uh, you may know I have a, I had a heart transplant. Okay, now I remember, you see, the trepidation I felt, uh, you know, I was out of hospital and I thought, well, I should start doing this again. Because, I mean, I was bedridden for a while with all kinds of tubes everywhere, so then I couldn't do it. But afterwards I thought, you know, maybe all this thing that they worked on in surgery will come loose again if I sort of stand on my head. But, you know, the desire was too strong. <laughs> so, you see, with excitement i tried it again and it worked yeah it came down and everything was normal i was still alive and so you know then i continued to do it but so lately i felt like now i'm taking it too far okay now then um, well i've taken a number of courses as like most westerners in that field uh, for years i practiced japanese martial arts and so with that went the practice of Zen Buddhism. That's where I know it from. Um, then, I mean, I've taken many courses, uh, both of Chinese and of Indian, uh, several retreats of Vipassana. Um, one more should I say? But, you see, the, the big moment for me was when I was age, I think, 20, I think, uh, this was in Amsterdam. Uh, I was there in Amsterdam. Amsterdam is like sin city, you know. And so I was there for all the wrong reasons. Nevertheless, there was this sort of new age center, uh, the Cosmos, it was called. And there I saw a poster hanging of a Hindu guru who was coming the next day, Swami Hariyarananda Giri from uh, Puri. Uh, who was in this Kriya Yoga tradition, uh, best known through Yogananda's autobiography. <clears throat> now, of everything they say, I'm not so impressed. Already then I found it a bit doubtful. You know, like there's a lot of overlapping with Christianity. 
In fact, I think right now in Los Angeles, where their headquarters is, uh, it's practically a Christian sect now. Uh, so there's a lot of mixing. Uh, so that I don't like at all. But the techniques are completely traditional. You know, the typical uh, uh, traditional, like, you see, concentrating on the center, um, you know, listening to the inner sound, seeing the light, uh, you see, closing the ears. Um, all this class. So you see, that I was taught all that by uh, Swami Hariyarananda, and he was very impressive. You see, when I say, um, you see, I've known some people reputed to be enlightened. I very first of all think of him. <coughs> he became 99 or so before he died. Um, and he was clairvoyant. Repeatedly, you see, he told me what, you know, what was on my mind or what would happen to me years later. And so that was, uh, that was impressive. Now you could say, of course, from a skeptical viewpoint, maybe I'm making it all up. Maybe I'm fooling myself. Yeah, I don't exclude it, but no, I, I tend to take it serious. <clears throat> and, you know, then there are more people that I could mention, but so... You see, I've gone through the fairly typical uh, Western itinerary of picking and choosing here and there. But gradually, you see, I became clearer about what was important and what was, what was auxiliary. So I tried to concentrate on the important things. There are, of course, also some auxiliaries that simply, for cultural reasons, I <coughs> gravitate towards. You see... Like, for instance, I, I really, you know, when discussing it, I am really not for bhakti Hinduism. <clears throat> and <clears throat> although I recognize that just like bhakti Christianity, it has produced wonderful art, wonderful music, wonderful paintings and so on. It's all there. And, you know, I like singing a few bhajans. But, you know, that's... That's, for me, that's not yoga, you know, that's not what it's really all about, but it's fun. Uh, so that more or less gives you a picture, I hope, of uh, what I have to do personally with uh, yoga. Yes? Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, let me first, you know, say a few things about what I was going to say. Um, <clears throat> You see, Hindu tradition tends to make a, a difference between what is happening in society and what is happening in yoga. You know, you have four goals of life, you know, uh, lust and then economic gain. They are more or less the same for all of humanity. Then you have dharma, which in principle, you know, every civilization, every society has, though, you see, in India, it's a bit more developed and perhaps more sophisticated than elsewhere. And then you have moksha. Now that's a very important distinction. Initially moksha wasn't there. So initially you have, you have three of everything, three castes instead of four, three Vedas instead of four and so on. And so you have three goals in life. The, the highest one of which is dharma. They, they correspond if you want to the three gunas with dharma being the, the sattvic one. 
And then you have a fourth pole, which is nirguna, which has no qualities. Just like in meditation, you do not think of anything. You do not think of lust, nor of gain, nor of doing your duty or honor or anything lofty. Nowhere you think of nothing. And so, uh, you see, that is, that is a perhaps difficult thing to learn also for Hindus, the distinction between those two. You see, dharma is good and valid and so on, but moksha is something different. <clears throat> and here, incidentally, I can understand the people who say, oh yeah, but you see, the liberal, anything goes agenda, that's a sign of enlightenment. Well, you see, that's not a sign of dharma. You see, dharma has very specific rules and so on. And yes, it is a bit tolerant, but it's not anything goes. That's a Western liberal novelty, you see. Dharma is more intelligent than morality systems in other religions, but it's not anything goes. Whereas, you see, moksha, you know, the pursuit of enlightenment, there anything goes simply because you don't do it, you don't care for it, you're not involved with it because you are busy with enlightenment. And so enlightenment is a different dimension in life than doing your duty, following morality and so on, uh, practicing religious rituals. You see, those are dharma, and then you have moksha, which is something else. And therefore, you see, moksha has nothing to do with uh, any social pursuit. Um, there is a difference, if you have ever noticed, between the system of uh, Ten Commandments in the Manu Smriti versus the Ten Commandments in yogic systems like the uh, like Buddhism or like the Yoga Sutra. You see, in the Yoga Sutra, you have a few principles, you know, practices you have to follow. And um, two of these are Ahinsa and Yoga Ch um, Brahmacharya, all right? Whereas in the Manu Smriti, you have also Ten Commandments and they largely overlap. But there is no Ahinsa and there is no Brahmacharya. Now this is very logical. You see, Dharma is about ordering society. Now in society, you do need the police to catch criminals and so on. And it is sometimes necessary that they are armed. And um, then of course... You can't have everybody practice brahmacharya because you need the next generation. And anyway, for many people, it is too heavy. So, um, so you need uh, the usual things. And, and celibacy is only for some select few who you know, feel like pursuing that. And so these yogic scriptures are meant for ascetics, for renunciates who do practice Ahinsa and who do practice Brahmacharya, whereas the Manusmiti is for everyone. And so there, a number of rules are given, like Akrodha, for example, not being angry is very important. In fact, you know, even if you forget everything else, at least this point I really want to make. You see, in the West nowadays, it is said that, yeah, you have to express yourself. You shouldn't repress your feelings. And so if you feel angry, you have to let it out. Now, you see, I think that is a very bad principle. You see, I think enormous 
damage is being done in interhuman relations by giving into anger. That's something you really have to outgrow. Now, being a human being, I am not free of anger. Nevertheless, I will never claim a right to be angry. You see, if it if it like is too strong and you know I give into it, I will always say afterwards I was wrong. I will always admit, no, you see, there is no such thing as a right to be angry. Okay, and so Manu had very correctly seen this. You see, one of the rules to follow is not being angry. But he could not impose ahimsa. You see, a certain amount of violence, of force, is inevitable if you want to keep your society running. And Brahmacharya, again, can be practiced by those who feel drawn to it, but to keep up a society, you know, you, you can't have everybody practice it. Hmm? So, you see, there is a difference between dharma, you know, keeping order in society, keeping a good atmosphere in society, like practicing religion is very important to create a feeling of togetherness, commonness of purpose and so on. It's very important, the fact that, you know, when I see on the banks of the Ganga in Varanasi in the afternoon a group of older people getting together to sing bhajans, you know, I think it's very important. You know, as some, some American Catholic lady told me once that it is the old ladies who go to church to pray who keep the world running. You see, that's, there is some truth in that, you see. This, this practice of uh, religious songs and so on is very important. Okay? So in that sense, you see, dharma is very necessary, but yoga is something else. And so that is one of the great merits of Hindu society, that it developed this. You see, most societies do have their religions, their rules and so on, but they, they do not have yoga. Or when they have it, when you look historically, ultimately, you very often find that it came from India. Like nowadays in the West, there is a neo-Stoic group. Stoicism was a Greek philosophy, and it has also to do with asceticism. And they also practiced some kind of meditation every morning. They had an hour of what they called staying in the now. Now, if you are thoughtless, if you are totally present... It means that you do not have thoughts about the future, you do not sit making plans, and you're not in the past, you sit not, you know, going over memories. You know, you are totally in the now. That's meditation. Okay? So, yeah, the Stoics practice that. But then if you study ancient Greek culture, you find that there's quite a bit of Indian import. So, you see, to, to some extent, this may simply be the radiation of India. Right. So, but anyway, this, this is an important, I mean, this is one thing you all can be proud of, that your civilization developed this. And so, uh, right now we live in an age when uh, this is, you know, here the merit of India is being transmitted everywhere. Last question. Uh, you said we should feel proud, you feel proud, but... It also gives pain to hear that there is a universalization and uh, spreading of yoga everywhere. That is good. We feel proud. But when it comes to international commercialization and money-making part of it, 
people have started saying that yoga's source is not India. It is there. It was there. As if it was found in America also. Yeah. 2000 years or 5000 years ago when America was not there. So, what do you feel about it? Yeah. It gives pain to hear that source of in, uh, yoga is not India. Right. Okay, now part of it is just fantasy. Like, for instance, you have the notion of Egyptian yoga. And in Egyptian yoga, they stand like this or so on. <laughs> just like these, you know, characters on the walls of the pyramids. Um, now, Egypt did not have yoga. I mean, I've checked it, you know, scholars of Egypt are united on this. Now, they may all be wrong, of course, but till someone can prove me that there was yoga there, I don't think there was yoga there. And so, you know, the Mayas and the Aztecs and so on, they all had some interesting philosophies and so on. But the specific practice of yoga, I think apart from India, it is a very rare thing. Um, then uh, you nowadays have commercial pressure. We see quite a few people who feel like teaching yoga or what they think is yoga, mostly Hatha yoga, um, they are faced with the problem that, you know, they, uh, they need to make a living. They want to make a living of that. And so they would like to sort of have a patent, you know, have a intellectual property rights over it. So you get a lot of, um, well, Americanizing yoga. In Europe, you don't see it much. You know, for what I know of the Belgian Yoga Federation and the European one, there is a lot of uh, nods towards India. Of course, the Sanskrit names of all the exercises are used as a constant reminder that this is from India. Then you see in the summer school of the European Yoga Federation, they always invite a few people from India and so on. So, you know about the Indian origin, there's no doubt at all. In America, by contrast, you see, quite a few money makers are trying to claim that, you see, this is their own thing. Uh, and then there is the, the uniquely American phenomenon of Christian yoga, where they try to sever it completely from Hinduism and, and give it all different names and so on and start their yoga class with a prayer. Um, you see, and there, of course, also they have an interest in distancing it as much as possible from Hinduism and from India. And that, of course, is intellectually dishonest. And I think that's a bad start for doing yoga. Uh, so that uh, I disapprove of. In fact, uh, the very meaning of yoga is not understood by most of the people. Most of the people. The purpose of yoga in India has been something different. The good health, good life, peaceful, these are all side benefits. Mm -hmm. Main aim of the yoga is yoga, yoga of Atman with Paramatma. Of I mean, every human being has the ultimate aim, <coughs> rise through chakras and through yoga, yoga, and merge with God, Ishwar. Atma, yoga, Paramatma. Yeah, well, usually that is a point of discussion. Um, <coughs> the philosophy around the yoga practice. You know, 
The yoga practice ultimately pursues one single achievement, which is a certain state of mind, you know, of silence of the mind. Now, around that, all kinds of different worldviews are built. Like the Buddhists say, oh, it is the, the end of the cycle of reincarnations. But you don't have to believe in reincarnation to do yoga. You see, reincarnation either is a fact or it is not. Now, me, for example, being very limited, uh, I don't know if there is anything like, like reincarnation. Many people in India tell me, yes, I know it, it's a fact, I feel it, I see it, and so on. Maybe, I mean, me, I have no experience of it. But, you see, you can do yoga regardless of what you believe. And so around this experience, enlightenment, you see, there are different constructions possible. And so one of these is to say, yeah, it's union with God. Now there, you see, I have to disappoint all these God-fearing Hindus. Uh, personally, I don't believe that. You know, I mean, I've outgrown Christianity with its belief in God, and I don't think I'll return to it. Um, but anyway, you see, <clears throat> that is a construction made around this silence of the mind. And there are other constructions possible. Um, many Hindus nowadays parrot Mahatma Gandhi saying, oh, all religions say the same thing. You know, that is not true at all. However, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, and so on, Vira, Shaivism, they do say essentially the same thing. You see, they are busy with this yogic experience. And then they build something around it, saying Shiva in the case of Vira Shaivas, or saying, you know, uh, Akal Purush in the case of Sikhism and so on. But this basic experience really is the same. You see, the meditation that Buddhists and others do, you see, some of the externals may be different, but essentially you sit there stilling the mind. That's the same thing. So, you see, if you don't go for this belief in Muhammad or in Jesus, or so you leave that out, but you concentrate on the experience, then you see those religions that care for the experience, they do essentially say the same thing. <clears throat>